The Sobey Art Award is Canada's most prestigious contemporary art prize, bringing national and international attention to Canadian artists age 40 and under. Stephanie Kamalang was the winner for 2019, picking up the $100,000 top prize. Learn more about Stephanie and the four Sobey finalists in the two-part series, The New Masters on CBC Ideas. For more information about the award, visit www.gallery.ca slash Sobey. This is a CBC Original Podcast. There are moments where I just have to stop and close my eyes. I know that this is coming. I know that this is inevitable, but I'm not okay with it. I don't like it. I don't like it at all. From CBC Original Podcasts, this is Love Me, a show about the messiness of human connection. I'm Lou. Today's episode, The Return. Shortly after I met my husband, Lloyd, his mom got sick. She was in her late 80s, and Lloyd and I had just started seeing each other. Things were still pretty new, maybe just a month. We went to visit her in the hospital, and when I arrived, it seemed like everyone recognized me. The nurses said, oh, we know you. I was like, what? And when I got to his mother's room, there was this huge photo of me up on the bulletin board behind her bed. Lloyd had sent her a picture of me to say, look, Mom, I met someone. Here she is. And she put it up on her wall. No one else's picture was up. Not her grandkids, not her kids. Just me. I've never had a close relationship with my own parents. Their affection has always felt conditional. But I remember just feeling this immediate acceptance from Lloyd's mom. She was going to love me because Lloyd loved me. I've done a lot of different woodworking projects in my lifetime, but I've certainly never done anything quite like this one before. I measured how tall he was, and then I bought two sheets of plywood, oak plywood, and I measured out the length that I would need and built the lid for it. I was told that the proper depth was about 16 inches, so I cut panels for the sides, and now I'm nailing the sides together and nailing them to the base of the coffin. My father-in-law, Walter, has cancer. It's in his bones and in his lymph nodes. The doctors told him, you're not going to win this one. We were sitting in the kitchen together, and he said, Kurt, I was wondering if you would would build a coffin for me. And I looked him in the eye and said, of course I would, I'd be honored. The basics of building a coffin 
are the same as any kind of construction process. You have to measure carefully. You have to get your angles right. It's, it's building a box. Part of what makes me love Walter is how much I love my wife. My wife and I dated when we were both quite young. I was 17 when we met and she was 19. And we dated for about a year. And then she went away to study nursing. And there were maybe, maybe five days in those five years when I didn't think about her and wonder how she was doing and, and would we ever see each other again. And then pretty much out of the blue, she called me up and said that she thought that we should get together and have supper sometime. And I thought maybe supper would be good, but maybe we should also just get married too. And within a year, we actually did get married. And Walter welcomed me right into the family. Walter is a gifted woodworker and a builder as well. We built a small little cabin together um, on their property. We called it the Soap Shack because I used to make homemade soap in there. This sounds really like pioneerish, but it really was kind of that way. Before the cancer, Walter had a great big white beard and uh, bright blue eyes that were just full of kindness and he just looked like a Viking. That's kind of how I thought of him. One time he was walking in the mall and a kid walked past and whispered to his mom. He said, Mom, I just saw God. But now with the cancer treatments, his hair has fallen out and he lost his beard. He looks like a very different person. I've got three children, 12, 10, and 5, and they would say, what are you working on, Dad? And I would invite them into my workspace and explain to them what I was working on, and they would run their hands over it or just look, and um, they certainly had a kind of a sense of reverence about the whole thing, being in the room with this box that would hold their opa's body one day. Seeing Walter in this process of dying reminds me of the kinds of fears that started when my first daughter was born. I remember the first time I carried her in her newborn car seat, and she was only a few hours old, this tiny little person, about as heavy as a jug of milk, and I kept having to switch from one hand to the other. I wasn't used to carrying a car seat like that, and I remember distinctly thinking, my daughter is three hours old, and I'm, I already feel like maybe I'm not strong enough to be a dad. We have to be very careful when we hug him now. The doctors have said that his vertebrae are all honeycombed, and if he twists wrong, there's a possibility of just breaking his bones. He's fragile. I'd cut and stored most of the pieces in the basement for more than a year. 
but a few months ago, Erica, my wife, said, I think you should probably finish building the coffin. I think we might need it soon. As he has grown sicker, I have sort of been afraid to go and, and spend time with him. I had seen him at Christmas time and then I hadn't actually seen him for months until I realized I need to go down and, and say what may well be my farewell to him. So I drove down and the whole drive down there, I was thinking, I really don't want to do this. I wonder if I could um, stop off for coffee somewhere and then just lie to my family when I got back and say, we had a great visit, everything's fine or something like that. But once I got there, um, I sat across from him in a chair and he sort of dozed a little bit and after we had um, visited for um, a few hours I stood up to go and I put my hand on his shoulder and I, I said I love you Walter and he said thank you for being my son-in-law He didn't want the coffin to have any handles on it. He said, I want you to have to bear the pall. I want you to have to work to move me. There are moments where I just have to stop and close my eyes because it hits me what I'm working on here. This is not a waterproof box. This is not a durable box. This is one that will return Walter's body to the earth. This is the return. Walter has seen the coffin that I built for him. My mother-in-law and my wife had to help him down the stairs, and he just um, kind of glanced at it and said, yeah, that looks like it'll do. Erica got a call about 4.30 in the morning. She hung up the phone just as I came into the room. And Erica's words were, he's gone. I mean, dying was a long process. He was dying, dying, dying. And now he had died. There was a, a clear line. And when I saw him in the bed, I felt like there was a switch it looked to me like a switch had been turned off. And I just didn't get it. And I still don't get it. The day that Walter died, in the afternoon, Jack, my son, was uh, spending a few minutes playing some online computer game. 
and the computer was glitching. It wasn't working properly, and he was feeling frustrated and anxious. And he went stomping off, slamming doors, and upset. So I hollered at him to come back and sit down on the couch. And he sat there on the corner with his teeth clenched and his fists all bunched up. And I told him, you're not allowed to go stomping and storming around the house like that. You drag us all into these bad feelings, and that's, that's just not fair, especially over a little computer game. And Jack said, it's not just about the computer game. <laughs> he said, of course it's not. And I started crying, and I said, my heart is breaking too. And I could see something change in him. His little fists relaxed. The look in his eyes turned from anger to deep sadness, and his jaw relaxed, and he just started to cry. And the two of us just kind of cuddled together. He put his head right against my chest and cried, and we both cried until our shirts were all wet with tears and our noses were all stuffed and plugged. And then we just sat on the couch quietly. Maybe someday I'll see Walter again with the great big beard that I remember him so well in. When she was in her early 50s, my mother planted a 15-inch cherry tree in her backyard. It was a Bing cherry tree, which is supposed to grow those big, dark, sweet cherries that you get at the market. We thought it would never grow into much, what with our Canadian winters, but she was pretty proud of it. My mother lived in a lower duplex below a cranky psychotherapist, appropriately named Dolores, who had a sharp voice and sharp feet always clicking around upstairs. Mum always wanted to get out from underneath Dolores, but she'd bought this house as a single mother on a nurse's salary, and that was a sweet victory worth defending. This tiny cherry tree was her way of laying down roots. A few years later, my mother got sick. While she was in radiation treatment, she had very little energy. Her cherry tree had yet to bear fruit, but I remember that autumn she stood in her open doorway and just watched the leaves falling. She held out her hand to catch them and said out loud how beautiful they were. Dolores leaned out her upstairs window to complain about the disgusting mess the leaves were making of the stairs. But nothing rattled Mum. She was full of mischief and humanism. Once, while traveling through Germany, she liberated a cow from its heavy, annoying clonk of a bell. I'm not sure how she got that thick leather collar off without getting kicked in the groin, but it hung in our kitchen growing up. 
We were definitely the only family whose kids were called into dinner with a cowbell. Dolores sure loved that. Eventually, Dolores got sick of the winters and moved to California. So Mum applied for a second mortgage to buy the upstairs. She was astounded when the bank said yes. The very next day, Mum had an aortic aneurysm. When the paramedics arrived, she was in the same spot at the front door where she had admired the falling leaves. She died by the time the ambulance reached the hospital. My mother and I had been chatting on the phone for a long time that evening, so when I got a call in the middle of the night to tell me what had happened, I was convinced it was her, just wanting to continue our conversation. The woman on the line kept saying my name, Carrie, Carrie. Mom, I asked. Carrie. Mom? Carrie. It was like I was projecting my mother's voice onto this other voice. Like a sonic oasis. We rented out Mum's house to a succession of tenants. Weird things started to happen. They discovered bees living in the wall. Lights kept burning out as soon as we'd replaced them. By the time we moved into the house ourselves a few years later, the cherry tree was as high as the second-floor balcony. It reminded me of my mother in so many ways. I would whisper to it about my day and tell it jokes. I imagined its flickering leaves were my mother's laughter. We hung a swing in the tree. Our kids would climb it and talk about how it was like the way they used to climb up Granny and be in her lap. That first spring, the blossoms exploded all over the tree, and that June, for the first time, the tree bore hundreds and hundreds of big, plump cherries. We all felt like it was Mum welcoming us home. The bounty has grown every year, and we have cherry martini parties every first week of July now. We have all the neighbors over, and they all go home with basketfuls of cherries. Our street bakes more cherry pies that week than the whole city makes in a summer. About a month ago, just as the cherries were ripening, I got some bad financial news and selling the house might be the best way out of the situation. I don't want to sell it, but I've been hovering at the windowsill for weeks, unable to make a decision, even though I know it's not practical that we stay here. It's been raining nonstop, and over the course of just two days, I've watched every single cherry turn from pink to gray, Bright pink bunches withered into these small, dark, rotted clusters covered in white spores. It turns out the tree is infected with a fungus, 
and thousands of cherries have fallen to the ground like little corpses, littering the soil all around us. The cherries that haven't fallen off the tree will stay in this gray, clustered state, clinging to their twigs through the 30-below winter and all the wind chill and threaten to reactivate their spores in the spring. I looked it up. These other ones, the ones that stay attached, are called mummies. How this happened, I'm not sure. But there's a new large gash in the tree's trunk that makes me think of my mother's tear in her aorta. If you look at the tree straight on, it's right where its heart would be. If we have to cut it down, I'm going to sell the place. Even the house itself was a tree once. People move on for all kinds of reasons, right? On today's episode, you heard Kurt Armstrong and Carrie Haber. Carrie is the producer of Montrealopolis, a podcast about the people that make modern Montreal. You can find a link at our website, cbc.ca slash loveme, where you can also see a photo of Kurt's father-in-law, Walter, with his great big beard. He really did look like a Viking. What is this strange, beautiful music we've been listening to? It's actually the sound of a tree. A spruce, to be specific. Artist Bartholomus Traubeck designed and built a record player that plays trees, interpreting the rings as music. Every tree has its own song. To hear more of Bartholomus's tree music, we'll have a link up on our website, Love Me is produced, edited, and mixed by Mira Burt-Wentonic and Crystal Duhame in Montreal. Original theme music by Tim Kingsbury. Scoring music by Murray Lightburn. Additional music by Nick Kipfer. And by Valleys. Subscribe to the podcast at cbc.ca slash loveme or through your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please tell your friends about it. It would mean a lot to us. I'm Lou Olkowski. Thanks for listening. Another request from my father-in-law was that it be jet black. So I stained it with a dark black stain and put a few coats of varnish on it. For Walter... For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.